Hey guys, you're listening to episode 59 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're talking to Andy Golaris, a neurologist from California. there. Welcome to the show. My name is Keelan, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Cody. Today, we're talking to Andy Galeris, a neurologist from California who is deeply passionate about generosity, not just for the impact we can have on those around us, but for how radically generosity shapes our relationship with God. Before we get started, do you ever wish you could find more people who are passionate about generosity, serving their communities, and advancing the gospel? Do you wish you could interact with some of our fantastic podcast guests? Well, we have a growing community on Facebook and LinkedIn where you can do just that. You don't need to have a financial finish line to join. All you need is a passion for glorifying Christ with whatever God's given you to manage. Look for the link in our show notes to learn more. And with that, let's get to our interview. All right, here we are today with Andy Galeris. Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be with you. So why don't you get us started just telling us a little bit about who you are and how you got to where you are today. Well, first of all, let me say that I am so impressed with what the two of you are doing with the Finish Line podcast. I think that the whole notion of a financial finish line is integral to Christian faith. And I hope that what you guys are doing as a podcast that now is small will grow to be large. But I also hope that this message of a financial finish line is something that will start being preached from pulpits across this country. You know, in places like in Africa and Asia where people are trying to, you know, live on $3 a day, they don't need to hear about financial finish lines. But in America, we're wealthy. Even poor people in America are relatively wealthy and moderate income people are wealthy. And I think that, you know, Luther famously said that there's three conversions everybody needs. The first is the head. The second is the heart. And the third is the wallet. And mm-hmm. I think the reason is that, you know, it says in Romans 8, he says, you know, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, then you'll be saved. But the question I always ask is, you know, it's easy to say things with my mouth. Never mind what somebody else believes in their heart. How do I know what I believe in my heart? And it's by how I behave. It's what I do. You know, one of the things that, like in politics, that everybody gets accused about, you know, someone so is, is a hypocrite. Well, the question for myself is, am I a hypocrite? I say I believe. Do I believe? And I think that one of the key and most important things where I can see if I believe is how I spend my money. It's it's been said a long time ago that if you want to know what somebody really believes, never mind to do with Christian faith, about anything in life, somebody's passionate about all kinds of different things. If you want to know how passionate they are about it, look at their calendar and look at their checkbook. Then you'll find out what they really believe. And so In some ways, it's not about salvation, but it is about salvation. The verses that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, I think he says, you know, on that final day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not preach the gospel? Did we not do miracles? Did we not prophesy? Did we not do all those kinds of things? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. And so the test for myself, never mind anybody else, the test for myself is where is my heart? And especially about money and you know, I don't want to go on too long here, but, you know, Jesus talked more about money than anything else. And I think we have gotten away from that. The gospel that we often preach in many of our churches only rarely mentions money, and it's very rarely a challenge about money. And I think here, you know, Matthew 6, the middle chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, the center of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most important instruction for us about how to live. It's how Jesus instructed his disciples about how to live. You know, it talks about three topics. It talks about fasting, talks about prayer, and it talks about money. And in the whole chapter, most of the chapter is devoted to money. There's three verses on fasting, there's 11 on prayer, and there's 20 about money. Surely that says something about what God's priorities are, not because I think he's making it hard for us. In the book Money, Possessions, and Eternity by Randy Alcorn, I love that book, but he has this one chapter that is phenomenal. It's chapter nine. I think there's a new edition out now. I think it's still chapter nine, but it's called Rewards for the Stewards in Eternity or something like that. He quotes John Bunyan. He's the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. 
He lived in the 17th century. And he talks about the idea that the depth of our experience of God is kind of, in a certain sense, proportionate to how sacrificially we've lived for God. Randy Alcorn has this analogy. He says, you know, if you go into a storeroom, imagine that heaven is compared to jars of jam. There might be some very small jars. There might be some huge jars of jam. So people who have lived very sacrificially in this life, every jar will be full. Okay, God will love everybody fully. But people who've lived very selfishly, can we say, and they may be, they're saved, okay? But they will have a very small jar. They will have a very small appreciation of the glory and love of God. But people who've lived with greatly sacrificial lives, who've given away generously, can I say people who've lived with a financial finish line, that they will have huge jars and their experience of heaven will be so much more of an experience of God's greatness and glory. And that's why I think that when Jesus talks about money, it's not because that's a requirement for heaven. It's not another hurdle. It's not a work we need to do. He's offering to us. He says, invest in eternity. I also love what Randy Alcorn says when we give away money. It's not a divestment. It's an investment. When we die, all the money we have is gone. In business, in corporations, you talk about financial firewalls. The ultimate financial firewall is death. (laughs) Nothing makes it past death. Except, as Randy Alcorn says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. So I think the reason Jesus talks so much about money is not because it has to do with our salvation. It's because he loves us and wants us to have a phenomenal experience in eternity. I'm really excited to get into a lot of the things that you just touched on. I appreciate your passion for this. I know you've done some speaking and writing on these topics, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about your personal background and what it was like when you were growing up. Okay, so I did not grow up in a Christian home, but I grew up in a home where generosity and sacrificial living was a constant theme. The person in my life who's influenced me the most is a lady who died about 80 years ago. I never met her, obviously. My father's best friend for over 50 years was a man named William Good. He was from Europe, from Poland, Lithuania area, and they were a Jewish family. So William had a brother named Motel. When the Nazis invaded Poland and Lithuania in June of 1941, they were Jews. They knew that they were targets of the Nazis. And so they lived in the capital of what's now Lithuania, Vilnius. So they had a place to hide and to escape to. It was, I don't know exactly, 20 miles out of town. It's a city called Nemention. And so they hid there successfully for a while. But then in September, the place where they were living, there was an old lady who came up to them in the middle of the night, tapped on their window and said, you guys, you better get out of here because the Nazis have conscripted all the men in the town to start digging graves. And the reason for the graves is because they're going to round up all the Jews and kill them within a few days. So William's father, his name was Dove, D-O-V, was a very clever, very smart man. He actually was a rabbi. He has an interesting story, too. But he had prepared a hiding place for, for William's mother, his wife. Her name was Hannah, Hannah Good. And so Dove put Hannah and their son Motel, who was then 14 at the time, into this hiding place. Now, Motel was a prodigy as a violinist. He was amazing. He used to play at all kinds of engagements, but he was a very sensitive and quiet young boy, very afraid very sensitive. So they were in this hiding place. And after a couple of days, he got a little bit restless and poked his head out. And some Nazi partisans who were around saw him and captured him and arrested him and took him to the police station. Everybody knew it was going to happen. He was going to be killed within a couple of days. So when they found out about it, Hannah and Dove and William got together and they discussed what they should do. And what Hannah ultimately decided was that she could not let her precious, young, sensitive son go on his final journey by himself. So she went, knocked on the door of the police station, said, I'm a Jew, I'm his mother, arrest me. And so they did. And within a couple days, they were shot. 
Now, what's interesting about this story, as I've thought about it over the years, is that there are stories of other people in history, whether with the Nazis or with other people, who sacrificed their life for somebody else, right? In concentration camps, there are stories of people who said, you know, kill me, don't kill them. They have a wife and family. I'm single. And that happened. She did not exchange her life for his. She simply offered her life for the sake of comforting her young son for a few days or a few hours. And for me, that's an amazing picture that I always keep with me of God's love for me, because that, I think, is God's love for me. And it is what my love for other people should be. She put her own life completely aside, not for the sake of saving anybody else's life, but for the sake of comforting somebody. I think about that story almost every day of my life. When I encounter anybody, when I encounter patients who are suffering, when I just meet people in random situations, I always think, how much am I willing to give for them? How much am I willing to sacrifice for them? So she's kind of been the most important person in my life, if I can say that. I'll say another story about, so Dove and William were then left. They were hiding in the woods. It was about 1943. Now we know the war was over in 1945, so it was for four years, but they didn't know in 1943, they didn't know how long this was going to go on. It could have been decades. But in 1943, they were hiding out in the woods. And one of the things you needed, you needed money. You needed money to buy food. You need money to have farmers and stuff like that. So they had a certain amount of money, which is a separate interesting story. But one day they got a letter from a man that they knew who had a wife and three children. And the letter said, please, can you loan us some money. We're out of money. If you don't give us the money, we're going to die. So Dove and William discussed it, and they said, what should we do? And what they ended up doing was giving half of their money to this other family. And the other family ended up surviving the war. Dove and William subsequently met them in Israel, where they were living in the 1970s, 1980s. But what's interesting about the story is when the war did end in May 1945, Dove and William were down to their last coin. So those are the kind of stories I grew up with. These were, you know, not Christians. I was not a Christian. I didn't become a Christian until I was 17. But I had that sense of what life and what human love and compassion were about. Yeah, I think that's such a strong foundation. And, you know, when people talk about their introduction to generosity in their life, most people kind of default to a story about money in some way. But I think the core of what you're getting at is really what drives all of us ultimately towards generosity, which is that God demonstrated the ultimate generosity in the sacrifice of his own son. And especially in that first story, you, you talked about the mother and her son. And I think that is such a powerful foundation of generosity, of giving your life as the ultimate sacrifice. And when that and when the gospel are the foundation of what you're doing, then everything else, I think, flows naturally from that. And I know you mentioned you came to Christ at 17, and I'm curious to hear how God led you in those early years, you know, as you went out into your career. How did God continue to stretch and pull you into where he's led you today? I was fortunate shortly after I became a Christian. The first Christian sermon I heard was by a man named George Verwer who had an organization called Opposition Mobilization. And it was all about this Christian message of sacrifice. And, and I just assumed that that's what Christian life was like for everybody. Remember, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't go to church. You know, being Christian was not part of my... So, you know, if you will, I guess they say that when baby birds are, are first born, they imprint on their mother. So that was the imprint on my life about what Christian life was like. A few years later, I was fortunate to be part of a church that started meeting in 1989. The church met at six o'clock every morning for prayer, seven days a week. And that was the most glorious time of my life. I learned a lot there. I learned a lot about giving. I had examples of people giving. I had opportunities to give. It was a church of about a hundred people. And we talked about money, interestingly. Our pastor was not afraid to talk about tithing and why tithing was good for us and giving beyond the tithe. By the way, this church is, most people live in the city of Pomona, which if you know anything about California, Pomona is a really relatively poor area. Most of the people live within an area of about four or five blocks of one another in this lower middle-class area of Pomona. 
And so I learned a couple things there. One is I learned that people talk a lot about building community. One of the things I experienced is that one of the best ways to build community is to worship together. And I think that's true in marriage and in families as well. It's good to talk and it's good to have communication and stuff like that. I'm not diminishing that at all because those things are important for building community. But in my experience, nothing builds community like worshiping God together and then sharing in that. So one of the things I've also learned over time is, you know, a lot of times, especially in American culture, we talk about generosity. We measure in terms of how much money people give. One of the things I've learned, especially Jesus makes it explicit in the story of the widow who gave two mites. He said, you know, she gave more than everybody else because she gave everything. But there were a lot of rich people standing around who gave a lot. You know, she gave more than they did. And one of the ideas that I've started thinking more and more about, about myself and how I measure, you know, I'm a doctor, so I have a fair amount of money more than a lot of other people. And so, you know, sometimes, oh, well, I gave a lot there. Or somebody says, well, you gave a lot there. But I think that what Jesus cares about is not how much money we give, but how much lifestyle we give. And so the poor widow gave her whole lifestyle. And one of the things I've reflected on about her, you know, sometimes we just end the story right there. She gave two mites. Jesus gave his talk and that was it. But, you know, knowing about the gospel, knowing about Jesus and his compassion, it's impossible for me to believe that. When Jesus saw what she did, that he didn't tell his disciples, go look at that woman. She's just given everything she has. Please make sure she's got plenty of food. Make sure she's got clothing. Make sure she's got a place to live, right? And sometimes I wonder, maybe that's where James says, right? He says, you know, if you say go and be warmed and don't do anything about it, you know, go and take care of people. Maybe the first time he saw that put into action was when he watched James take care of the widow. So, It's not just that she gave a lot. It's just that, you know, she thought that that was her last two coins. She was just going to die. I assume that's what she thought. How was she going to buy bread for another couple days? She had nothing. But what she thought, quite understandably, was the death was actually the doorway to her being able to survive. And I suspect that that's true for a lot of us in this world, as well as in eternity, that it's the giving away of our lifestyle, and especially by poor people. You know, I'm involved with some charitable organizations and their fundraising departments and development departments. One of the things that is always said is, well, we're going to nurture relationships with wealthy people. We're going to help them so that they can grow in their relationship with God with generosity. The thing I always think about, you know, there's a lot of poor people out there who need to grow in their relationship with God through giving. And I think it kind of betrays their real motives because if they really cared about people growing in generosity, they would talk as often to poor people as the rich. And there's a whole bunch more poor people than there are rich people. So I learned a lot about it, about giving in my church. We were a small church. We had needs. And so I had the opportunity to give. I always looked at those needs as a providential gift from God to me. God was putting somebody with needs. God was putting a church with needs in front of me so I could give to it. I was blessed to have that opportunity to give, you know, so I learned a lot. Yeah, Andy, tell me more about that. As you had opportunities to start giving and you had a pastor who wasn't afraid to talk about these concepts of tithing and giving above and beyond the tithe and how that relates to what we see in Scripture and with the background of giving in more than just a financial sense, as you began to take advantage of these opportunities to live this out yourself, what was attractive about that? And where did it take you? Well, I think it has helped me understand some things about how God views money. I think it helped build community. And, you know, a lot of our giving was done secretly in that church, which I think is so important. Since then, I've been involved in some giving and, you know, you give some money and they put you on a board and stuff like that. And sometimes, you know, listen, it's good for my ego, but sometimes I think, you know, the best gift, my wife and I did something a couple of years ago where we gave, you know, what was for us a fair amount of money and we did it completely anonymously. There's ways you can do this. And what's funny, I've had some encounters with the people and they're just kind of mystified. They say, who gave this money? How did this happen? But my experience of this has been that it's almost like I have a little, this will be hard to put, like a little nuclear reactor of joy in the pit of my stomach. <laughs> that just doesn't go away ever since then. You know, and there's a part of me that thinks, you know, I wonder, maybe there's another opportunity to do something like that. It was totally unexpected. That's not why I did it. I did it just to take God at his word. You know, he says, you know, if you give in secret, you know, if you want to give publicly, give publicly, you'll have your reward. 
but if you want to give in secret, then God will reward you. And I've experienced God's reward in that. Let me say something else about that church community, because it's probably the best gift I've ever given in my life. And it wasn't a gift to the church community at all. I mentioned that all these people who there were about a hundred of us and a third were children. Interestingly, our church budget was consistently about $300,000 a year. And one, one year was $500,000. This is a hundred people in a lower middle-class community. But at the time I was living in a nearby city called San Dimas, we had a home 3,500 square feet. It was on the crest of a hill. We had a view. It was through the back upper window in a bathroom, but you could see downtown Los Angeles down that way, <laughs> 30 miles away. But then out our front door and in our front yard, we saw, I don't know if you know Southern California, we could see Mount Baldy. We had a view 30 to 50 miles away. And when it was winter and it was covered by snow, it was spectacular. And we could see over the San Gabriel Valley. I loved that home. When we bought it, my wife said it was her dream home. But increasingly, I began thinking, you know, most of the people in our community with whom we were getting closer and closer live in this four or five blocks in Pomona. Wouldn't it be nice if I moved in with them, you know, there's nothing about my money that makes me special. Why do I deserve to live in a house like this? So we started looking around, where can we live close to them? And to make a long story short, there was one really nice home in the area. It's a colonial home, 4,300 square feet. And I knocked on the door one day and asked the owner, would you be willing to sell? And he asked this outrageous price. And he says, you know, it's a Beverly Hills home. It's not in Beverly Hills. And he was giving me a Beverly Hills price. But anyway, within a few months, there was a fire in the home and the owner was, he was in his mid eighties. And so he didn't die in the fire or anything like that, but he ended up going to a nursing home and the stress of the whole thing meant that he died within a couple of weeks after that. So the estate, you know, got a lot of money from the fire insurance. The house was just sitting there. It had been largely gutted by the fire. There was a pool in the backyard that was empty. They were worried about all kinds of liability issues you know, homeless people were camping in the yard. There were people falling into the pool. And so, so they were just anxious to get rid of it. And so we were able to get it for a cheap price. And so we had some equity in our other home, a couple hundred thousand dollars of equity. And what we we're planning on doing is just, you know, use that to rebuild the home. But just at that time, there was a financial windfall that came totally unexpected that allowed us to completely redo the home. You know, it has copper pipes, it has new floors, it has a brand new roof. I mean, it's you couldn't ask for anything better. And ever since then, I'm in this house right now. That house, you know, every time I look at it, every room I look at, when I stand outside, look at it, I realize this is God's house. I was willing to live with my people. I was willing to step down in lifestyle. And God blessed me with this phenomenal home. It's an exquisite home. But even if it wasn't an exquisite home, the fact that it got paid for the way it did, it's God's home, if that makes sense. Everything in the home, it's not even my home. It's God's blessing to me. There's a lot more stories I could tell you about that. But one thing, a couple, about a month after we closed on the home, we moved into the home. It was all built. Our religious organization has a national meeting. It was at the Century Plaza Hotel in Los Angeles, which, if you know, that's a huge place, beautiful place. So we had bought hotel rooms for $139 a night. And so we had bought them in advance. So my wife had been to the beach with our four young children and they were all dirty and sandy. She went toddling up to the counter and said, well, you know, I'm Jerry Galeris. He came from a reservation. And the guy behind the counter just looked at her and kind of a blank look and said, can you give me just a minute? And so he went away and came back a minute or two later. So, you know, we don't have the room you reserved, but you know, we do have another room. We hope it'll be okay with you. And he gave her the key. And so we went upstairs and it turns out it was the top floor. It was the whole wing. It was where Ronald Reagan stayed when wow. he was in Los Angeles. I mean, the hotel room must have been 3,000, 4,000 square feet, a view of the ocean going one way. And I felt it was like God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. I stepped down and he raised me up. Yeah, you know what I love about both those stories of the house and the hotel is that really the dollar amounts are such a side detail in all of these stories. What I think is most significant is that when you are patient and trying to follow in step with God through everything, then every blessing that comes, it 
just brings direct glory to God. Like the fact that you can share these stories. And the first thing that comes to mind is how grateful to God and how much that, you know, drew you closer to God. That I think is where so much of the strength of generosity and faith in general comes from is that we start to be able to point every little detail of our lives to God and we see him in everything around us. And in so many of the stories you've shared, I think that is one of the highlight points is how all of this draws us closer to God. I wanted to ask, as you have over the years continued to be stretched and God has been working in your heart, have you found any kind of strategy for how to know when to give? And I know a lot of that comes with trying to just be actively listening to God, but we've heard people share all kinds of different things that have been helpful for them. There's people who primarily give spontaneously as they're led and others who use a percentage or a finish line, or is there anything that you have found particularly helpful over your walk through generosity? Yeah, that's a great question. There is something that I've I've found, and that is I set aside a certain amount of money to give, and I kind of do it in advance. And that way, every decision about giving is not a new decision. There's actually an interesting way that some people might find helpful. So I have a donor-advised fund, but then I set up not a private foundation, but a public charity. It's a 501c3 public charity. And, of course, to do that, you can't have relatives. So I have two good friends who are on the board with me. So there's three non-related people on the board. So it's a public charity. So with that public charity, we can actually help people pay rent. We can help with food payments, you know, things that a private foundation can't do. Private foundation, I think, can only give to other charities. And what makes it work, though, if you have a public charity that's a 501c3, at least one-third of your funding, maybe two-thirds, I'm not sure exactly, has to be from public sources. But we don't really have a public source. But it turns out gifts from a donor-advised fund to a public charity are considered arm's-length transactions So it allows us to be a public charity. And so we just have money set aside there. So when something comes up, my wife and I just talk about it. And listen, I've made plenty of mistakes in giving. You know, I'm embarrassed by some of them. But, you know, that's how it is. But one of the things that I've learned is that I somehow think that God cares more about me giving than about how effective the giving is. I mean, I think both are important. I don't want to minimize that. One of the things that I've thought a lot about is the issue of discipleship. You know, the Great Commission, Jesus says, go to all the world and make disciples of all nations. Sometimes we misunderstand that. We say, oh, make converts. But really, he says, make disciples. So the thing I realize is there's a guy named Pete Scazzaro. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He has this wonderful organization called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And one of the things he often says is, When it comes to the Christian life, he talks to pastors a lot. He says, it's more important who you are as a pastor than what you do as a pastor. And I'll say that it's more important who I am as a Christian than what I do as a Christian. So even though I think I've made mistakes sometimes, I wasn't trying to make a mistake. I was trying to give. And so it's funny, there's a verse that always haunts me. I think it's in Matthew 23. Jesus goes through this list of woes of the Pharisees. We tend to think of the Pharisees as being stuck in the temple and just doing their thing in the temple. But one of the woes, he says, behold, you traverse land and sea to make one convert. Apparently, they were evangelistic. But he says, and when you convert him, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. And it always scares me. You know, suppose I talk to somebody about Christ. I'm nervous. I'm thinking to myself, am I the kind of person who can say to them, follow Christ like I follow Christ? I'm afraid I'm not, you know, fortunately, thank God for the grace of God (laughs) that overcomes my weakness. But I think that the reason Jesus, as I mentioned before, talks so much about money is I think it's one of the most important discipleship issues in our lives. And so if I want to be a disciple, if I want to help truly convert people to Christ and not make them twice the son of hell that I am, I need to pay attention. Andy, I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about some of the lessons that you've learned by giving over a period of time. And I'm asking because I've talked to people who feel like their gift didn't have the impact that they intended, and that provides hesitation in further giving. And I think it's okay to go through the process and learn from mistakes. And I'd love if you could just share some of the lessons you've learned by giving well, and then sometimes not as well. Well, I can tell you the main lesson I've learned is that 
when we do fundraising, when people have wonderful organizations that drill wells and that feed starving people and do all these kind of things, they are doing wonderful work. And sometimes they ask us to give money to them. And often I give, I want to give, I want to support those kind of things. But let me backtrack a little bit. I mentioned my father was a very generous man. There was one time in his life, I won't give you the details, where he gave away everything he had. It was 1949, it was $800. I tried to translate it into today's money. It's maybe forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. He was coming from Italy where he went to medical school to the United States. He spoke broken English, but he had two friends there. One of them was William. He thought they would need the money more than he did. So he just gave them everything. So I grew up in that kind of home. So we had a lot of fundraisers coming to our home, trying to raise money for many worthy causes. These were all worthy causes. These were phenomenal people. When I became a Christian, started being on some boards, and I noticed that they had fundraising departments, or then it's called development departments, and now it's called advancement departments. You know, I think for some reason we want to stay away from the fundraising name. I wish we'd just be honest about it. But what I noticed was that they're doing the same kind of fundraising that I was used to when people would come to my dad. They would talk about how great their projects were and how much good their money could do. It would bother me. I thought, surely there should be something different about how Christians do this compared to how non-Christians do it. And I started reading the Gospels. So how did Jesus address this issue? And one of the things I noticed is that every time Jesus talked about money, and there are no exceptions to this, he talked about why giving was important for the sake of the soul of the person with whom he was talking. So, I've learned to call the fundraising that's for a good cause, I call it ministry-centric fundraising, and that can happen in our churches and stuff like that. It's an appeal for the sake of ministry. But Jesus, you know, if you think about the story of the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus seeking, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, give away all your money to the poor. Well, Jesus it was had nothing to do with helping the poor. He was trying to help that young man find eternal life. And in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about, you know, giving to the prisoners and the hungry and the poor and the naked and prisoner, you know. And he says, and that's why you'll be saved, because you've done that. It had nothing to do with helping the people. And if you look through everything Jesus says about money, when he talks about the guy who built bigger barns, and Jesus says, you are a fool. This night your soul will be required of you. You've been a fool because you would not become rich toward God. So I call that soul-centric fundraising. And needs will come across our path. There will be wells in Africa that need to be built. But what I wish our fundraisers would do, our development officer, advancement officers, whatever you want to call them, is instead of saying, we would like you to give for the sake of building this well, we would say, there's this opportunity. We think it will be good for your soul and your relationship with God if you can contribute to it. And by the way, you see how that does things differently for rich people and poor people, because if your goal is ministry-centric, you need donations from rich people. Okay, let's face it, it's a waste of time to talk to poor people. But if your focus is on their souls, then even the little donations of poorer people, a couple dollars they give here or there, accomplishes maybe more in their lives than the, a big donation from rich people. So it's a whole paradigm shift. So when you, come, when you talk about the mistakes I've made, because I've done those kind of things where you know I've given to people and found out, I try and reel myself back in and said, God, I gave for the sake of, of my soul. Yeah, I think that you're onto something there, very significant. It really comes down to generosity as a form of discipleship that by helping to grow ourselves and our brothers and sisters in faith and in our walk with Jesus, a necessary part of that is growing in generosity and in doing so, freeing the power of money and wealth in our lives however much there is. And I think that you're absolutely right that not just for ministries, but also for churches, a lot of what is spoken about on money in churches is around encouraging people to tithe to the church because there is a financial need. And the, you know, the church needs some degree of funding to function. And unfortunately in many places, that is the extent of what is preached on wealth when really there is a much deeper calling, and it sounds like the church that you spoke about earlier was actually a very great demonstration of this, but as generosity and giving as a form of discipleship in the same way that we should be encouraging each other towards prayer, towards 
community and worship, all these core principles of discipleship, generosity is part of that. Yeah. And especially, I would say, among poor people, if I can say that I think that the whole issue of money has kind of gotten a little bit out of kilter in the American church, we have a lot of poorer people, moderate income people. You know, if I said to anybody, would you be willing to live on $500,000 a year? You know, listen, I have a lot of hands go up in almost all our churches, right? Now, suppose I said, I have two examples of people. One guy earns a million dollars a year, and he's willing to give $500,000 to the church building program or to World Vision or to whatever. Everybody's, wow, that's impressive. And suppose that I have a waitress who earns kind of a subsistence level of income. She earns $20,000 a year. She has a child at home. And she ties, she gives $2,000. Who gave more? The woman who gave $2,000 gave far more than the millionaire who gave $500,000. He still has $500,000 left to live on. And we already established that we'll have a lot of volunteers to make the sacrifice that he did. You know, we'll give you a million dollars. All you have to do to keep the million dollars is to give away $500,000. So I think that we are, in a sense, robbing poor people, if I can put it that way, by not showing them how valuable spiritually it is for them to give even small amounts. Because the small amounts, I suspect that $1 that that waitress gives is worth more than the $500,000 given by the wealthy person. Of course, what it neglects to say is that the millionaire, it's so easy in our culture to have the tentacles of wealth crawl under our skin. and into our. So I recognize for him to give away $500,000 is a big sacrifice, but it's only because he's been so consumed. And by saying him, I'll say myself too. You know, I don't like giving away money. I'm a very greedy person. Here's a little sidelight. I heard Tim Keller. He says that in all his decades of ministry, many people have confessed all kinds of things to him. They've confessed, you know, adultery and lust and lying and cheating and stealing and all kinds of things. He says the one thing nobody's ever confessed to him is greed. And he says he thinks it may be one of the most common heart sins that all of us suffer from. And so I'm sympathetic, and I'm sure God is too, the millionaire who gives away $500,000. God knows how much work he had to do to overcome his greed. So I'm not, please, I'm not minimizing that gift. But I would like to raise up the small gifts of our poor people. Let's honor those gifts. And the way we honor it is by not making such a target out of the thermometer. You know, success means the thermometer reaches the top. Well, I'm sorry if I'm a poor person, my couple dollars doesn't do anything to raise the thermometer. Can we have a different way of thinking about this? And I love the way Randy Alcorn talks about this. I mentioned before, he has a chapter nine in his book. He talks about eternal rewards for stewardship. He says, it's not an issue of salvation, but you know, I mentioned the jars before. There's verses in First Corinthians 3, where Paul talks about, you know, you can build your foundation of your life on wood, on gold, on silver, on stubble, on whatever. And at the final day, it will all be tested by fire. And what you have left will be what you've got. You know, you'll still be saved. Your soul will be saved. It clearly says that at the end. It's not a matter of salvation, but it's a matter of eternal rewards. You know, a lot of us think of heaven as just being a place you go and everybody's happy and, you know, there's no tears and stuff. like. It's all very equal. I mean, that's, I think, a predominant notion. At least Randy Alcorn says that, and I believe that's true. Everybody thinks heaven is equal. But I wonder if that's not the case. And again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking and he talks about not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law until the Father comes. He says, but whoever obeys the law and teaches others to do so will be great in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does not obey the law and teaches others will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's an interesting idea, right? That means in the kingdom of heaven, there are people who are great and people who are least. Well, that kind of explodes our idea. Well, everybody in heaven is equal. How do we, I'll say, earn rewards? The way we earn rewards is by giving. And poor people have a tremendous advantage, I would say, in earning God's eternal rewards for their giving compared to rich people. If you really want to think about it, and Jesus Jesus even addresses this, if what you really cared about was eternal rewards, and I love you know Randy Alcorn's ministries, he called eternal perspective ministries, right? So what he's talking about is having an eternal perspective on our money, recognizing 
as I already said, the, you know, when we die, we lose everything. So you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead, as he says. So if we have an eternal perspective on this, being rich, it is far harder to give. The temptations to give are far harder to overcome. I love, you know, in Alan Barnhart's story that he told at Generous Giving, and there's several different versions of, I've listened to that probably a hundred or 150 times. And that's the first place I heard about the financial finish line that, that you guys are talking about. But among the reasons he gives for pursuing a financial finish line, he talks about the parable of the four soils. He says he wasn't too worried about the first soil or the second soil, but the third soil he was very worried about. And he said that, you know, the seed that was put in the third soil and the seed that put, was put in the fourth soil was the same seed. And they were both good soils. But the seed put in the third soil was choked out by the riches of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth. And so that's why he said he became concerned about wealth. And so if you wanted to think about it from a very logical, rational point of view, and you were thinking about eternity, never mind this life, think about eternity, you would avoid the idea of wanting to be wealthy, okay? It's so full of temptations. And that's one of the reasons, though there were other reasons too, talked about a financial finish line. Part of the way I think about it is I'm obese, okay? Five foot nine, 250 pounds. I'm addicted to food. I admit it. If anybody listening to this wants to pray for somebody, pray for me, I can overcome that addiction. I just, I would love to lose weight, but it's hard. Put a little context on this. I have a friend of mine who was in jail for amphetamine addiction and using amphetamines. And I visited him in jail and, you know, go visit people in jail. There's a glass, you have a telephone here, a telephone there. And I went to him, I said, I get the fact that you're in jail because of this addiction, but I just want to tell you that my addiction is far stronger than your addiction. I'm sympathetic to you. I know how hard it is for you to break that addiction. I'm just lucky because my addiction's legal and yours is illegal. I sometimes wonder if money is far more addictive than we are aware of. Is it possible that money is even more addictive than amphetamine was to my friend or that food is to me. You know, there are stories I remember from, I think it was medical school or psychology where they took rats. They would get them to tap to get a reward. It might've been cocaine or something like that. And the rats would just keep tapping that thing even to the point that they starved to death. And so I think money can be that kind of thing. I mean, people will sacrifice their marriages. People will sacrifice their children. People will cheat and steal and go to jail for the sake of, you know, saving a few dollars here and there. So imagine that we recognized an eternal perspective, like Randy Alcorn says, about money. Then one could say, if you're really thinking, you'd really want to stay away from money. One of my favorite verses is towards the end of Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 30, that I, for some reason, I don't know where I saw this when I was a, first became a Christian. It says, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches, I don't know exactly how it goes. Lest I become rich and forget you and say, who is God? Or lest I become poor and steal and profane the name of God. I think that's the prayer that we should have. Give me neither poverty nor riches. And isn't that what a financial finish line is about? That's why I think that what you guys is so central to the spiritual progress of American Christianity. I think I fear that the American dream and the Christian dream have often become conflated together. Even sometimes the way we talk about tithing, you tithe and God will bless you. And we have these great stories about how God blesses people and they gave and God poured out more money on them. That's true. Okay. I mean, but it's really an eternal perspective. Of course, eternity begins now. Okay. So I don't want to minimize that. There are eternal rewards starting from this moment, but I wish you didn't talk so much about the financial aspects of that. You know, when Keelan introduced the concept of generosity to me, and then eventually the concept of a financial finish line, although that's not what he was calling it at the time. We had never heard that term before. I didn't understand the relevance for me because I didn't feel like I had enough. I was a few years out of college and we were trying to figure out how to get more, more income, savings, all of it. And giving beyond a level of what felt like obedience to me at the time seemed kind of irrelevant to me until I really started to explore this. And it, a lot of what I've learned came through practicing it, but certainly through perspectives of people like yourself and stories. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, what is the opportunity to really share generosity with people who don't feel like they have enough? Because I can relate to how setting a financial finish line may seem irrelevant to a, a large group of people. But what is the opportunity to actually share the true benefits of generosity beyond 
someone else is going to be better off because your money helped them? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Something I wrestle with myself all the time. I think that, you know, for people who really are poor and just trying to scrape by and barely make it, you know, the financial finish line is not something that they need to hear about. They just need to make it. But beyond that, I think one of the things that the scripture clearly teaches and I think we ignore a lot is that wealth is a providential gift of God. I hear all the time about people who tell me how hard they work to get rich and how smart they were. I mean, there's the Forbes list of 400 wealthiest people or 100 or however many are on that list. There's always a selection bias that happens in that, though, okay? People who start off trying to get rich and don't get rich and end up being bankrupt don't make it on those lists. We don't hear those stories. We hear the stories of the people who do make it rich. But there's this passage, there's a couple passages in the scripture. One's in Deuteronomy 8, where Moses says something like, you know, when you get to be rich, when you have nice homes, when you have all kinds of stuff you need, whatever you do, don't forget the Lord your God. And then this is the key verse, for it is he who gave you the power to earn wealth. I always cringe inside when I hear about people talking about how hard they work to get wealthy. Because, you know, if they could come into my exam room, you know, I see lots of people with Down syndrome. I see people who with multiple sclerosis. I see people with severe headaches who are just disabled by their problems. And these are people in their 20s and 30s. And when I hear those stories about people, I worked so hard and I did this. And sometimes it even gets dressed up with a little bit, well, and God blessed me with this and God blessed me with that. You should meet some of my patients. And some of them are the most joyous people you've ever met. I think of one person I have who has this, we call it cervical dystonia. She can hardly talk, but she's just full of joy all the time. She's a Christian. She prays almost constantly. But it turns out to have wealth, it's not just working hard. It's not just being smart. It's not just taking various opportunities. It's something so fundamental as having simple, physical good health. So I would love it if all of us who have wealth would recognize the reason we have it. I mean, even if you're not a Christian, you don't have to say God did it. You know, Warren Buffett has this famous little line saying that he attributes a lot of the fact that he's wealthy to winning what he calls, quote, the ovarian lottery. And, you know, he himself, I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but he himself recognizes how important just simple circumstances of life have been. And I think it's always helpful for me when I realize you know, I have some money to give away. Other people don't. And it's not because I'm smarter, I'm luckier. My father was a doctor, which is why I'm a doctor, okay? If their father was a doctor, instead of abusing them, I know this one guy I'm thinking of in particular, he was abused when he was young. He's far smarter than I am. He's very good with his hands. You know, if he had my father, he would be a world-famous cardiologist. I have no doubt about it. Instead, he does, you know, odd jobs here and there. And that's even just from a human perspective. So I think as soon as we realize that, then we start to realize that it's just simple fairness that I share with others. But now you add in God's enormous love for us and this eternal perspective and the fact that we, because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice for us, we can enter into his way of sacrificial giving. I'll call it not giving away money, but giving away lifestyle God rewards our lifestyle. I mean, this is one of the great messages of the gospel that we should be telling everybody about. It's not just you can be saved. For all eternity, if you're willing to give away your lifestyle, look at the opportunities you have. This is a message that nobody else is talking about, but it's true. Never mind, as Randy Alcorn talks about it. He says, do it for your own self-interest, right? He says, when we raise, and some people get weirded out about that. Well, you can't give, you have to give out of pure love. He says, well, when we raise children, we give them potential rewards and punishments. When children are in the classroom, they have potential rewards and punishments. Now, maybe if you're a spiritual giant, maybe if you're Billy Graham, you can just give out of a purity of your heart. But if you're spiritually weak like I am, it's helpful to have those promises of rewards. It'll help me give more. And God wants me to do that because he wants me to, if you will, increase the size of my jar so that he can fill my jar with more of his love so my experience of heaven will be that much more glorious. He wants it for my sake. Yeah, amen to that. So as we're getting towards the end here, I just wanted to get your thoughts. I'm picturing somebody listening to this and who is finally something is clicking and 
they want to step into generosity in some way and just don't know how to get started. What would you say to somebody like that who has heard a lot of what we've been talking about today and wants to do something to start to let God move in this area and just doesn't know where to begin? Well, I start by saying read chapter nine of Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And then, you know, take a different perspective on money. One of the things he points out is that generosity is an investment. It's not a divestment. You know, capitalism works compared to socialism and communism because I think we need incentives. I mean, capitalism hands down shows that if you give people incentives, they'll work harder and work smarter. Well, imagine we applied some of those reward principles to eternity, which is what I think it should be. I think it's how God has designed us. He has hardwired us to seek rewards. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's God's blessing on us. So I would say, especially to poor people, if any poor people listen to this, just give a little bit, give a dollar. Give, you know, see a homeless person, give a dollar. You see somebody from the Salvation Army out in front of some place, give a dollar. Just give a dollar. You can't possibly imagine how much good that's doing. There's a man named John Chrysostom who lived in the late 300s. He has this great, you know, explanation of the story of the 10 widows in Matthew 25. And one of the things he says is, if you don't have very much money, give a dollar and buy the sky. It says not because the sky is cheap, but because God is generous. He says, you don't have even a dollar to give. Give a glass of refreshing water. There's the verse in the scripture about just giving a glass. He says, God, you can't possibly imagine how much God will bless your giving. And for wealthier people, I will say something paradoxical. If you're wealthier and listening to this, you have my sympathies, okay? Because giving is much harder for wealthier people than poorer people. I get it. It's hard. The tentacles of wealth. I feel the tentacles in myself. They're hard to break free from. I have a retirement that I need to think about. I have all these things to think about. And yet, it's funny, for many years, I used to tell my wife, I believe the whole gospel, except for these few verses at the end of Matthew 6. And that's where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I said, you know, I just don't believe that. I need a retirement plan. I need a 401k. I need this. I need that. That's just being transparent. I don't believe it. Interestingly, about six months ago, God kind of convicted me. Well, he pounded me in the head. I had a financial loss. And whenever I have a financial loss or something like that happens, I would say, God, why? What's going on here? You're trying to get my attention about something. And what I realized is I was kind of cutting corners on something financially. So I stopped doing that. And you know what? So ever since then, I try and live out that little, I don't do that financial corner cutting. I do it right. And every time I do it right, what I feel is, I feel it's almost like a weightlifter who's lifting weights. And my faith is growing in being able to fulfill, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. My faith is growing in that area. And so that's what I would say to wealthy people. Do you really believe that passage at the end of Matthew 6? And if you do, live like it. You know, Jesus says, don't worry about your future. Don't worry. Now, I'm not saying to be imprudent. Okay, I please, I don't want to be stupid. But grow in that faith and think about what are things that you could do so that you also could believe what I have struggled my whole Christian life to believe. Andy, my last question is, how do you see God working in your life to challenge and grow you in the coming years? Well, you know, I'm talking to people some about this, and the more I talk to them about it, the more scared I get, because, as it says in James, not let many of you become teachers. <laughs> I'm paying far more attention to what I'm doing with my heart, and I don't have a specific plan in mind. I'm just more terrified than I ever have been before about how I'm living my life. And sometimes I'm more grateful than I used to be about, you know, if I find a need that crosses my path. You know, it may just be somebody at the checkout stand at the grocery store because they're fumbling in their wallet. They're not sure they have enough money. And I just kind of wink to the cashier. They know me a little bit. I say, you know, I'll cover it. So those are glorious opportunities. And so I want to be faithful in all those little things. You know, one of the things that the parable of the unjust steward, which has always puzzled me a lot, you know, it's the guy who Jesus is going to fire and he goes out and makes illegal deals with all his master's creditors. 
So one of the things it says here, you know, he who's faithful in little will be faithful in much. He who's not faithful in much, you know, won't be trusted with little. So I just want to be faithful. Well, I think that there's a healthiness to wanting to, you know, always be conscientious of the decisions we make, knowing that everything we do has eternal consequences and consequences on our hearts. And obviously that mindset has so deeply enriched your life and your heart and all that God has done through you. And so I hope the same for myself and I'm sure Cody does as well. Well, I do want to leave a second as we get to the end of our episode here for our manager's minute. We like to end every episode with one practical action our listeners can take to step into their roles as stewards and manage God's wealth wisely. So Andy, do you have a suggestion for our listeners today? Actually, I have two suggestions. They don't directly have anything to do with money. The first would be something I'm learning in my life, and that is how important it is to listen to other people and with the goal of finding something to affirm in them. If there's a poverty out there anywhere that's greater than any financial poverty, it's the poverty of spirit that a lot of people feel with nobody affirming anything in their lives. I remember it was a wonderful podcast you had with Brian Fickert, okay, you know, who talked about the thing that people with poverty need more than anything else is not money necessarily. It's that affirmation of their lives, of their value. And I find that's true, not just among poor people, but almost everybody I encounter. I find it in my life. So I try and listen. I just try and find something. For example, if I find out somebody has adopted a child, I think adoption is the most glorious human relationship there is. You know, so many of our wars and disagreements in life have to do with, well, I'm this nationality, I'm that nationality, I'm this religion, I'm that religion. You know, and especially cross-cultural, cross-racial adoptions, cross all those things. There's a lot more I can say about that. But And the second thing is that one of the things I've learned is that I sin a lot. So I'm asking people for forgiveness a lot. I'll give an illustration of my talk, something I learned from my father-in-law, who is a godly man. I sinned terribly against him once. I won't give you the details. It's too embarrassing. But when I apologized to him, I came to my senses. It took a while, but I finally came to my senses and apologized to him. And I said, Jack, I am so sorry for what I did. And what he said back to me was something fascinating. He didn't say, okay, Andy, I forgive you. Okay, because, you know, if he says that, then, you know, I'm what I call a humble suppliant and he's the gracious forgiver. Okay, well, he forgave me. What he said was, Andy, I remember a time in my life where I did something very similar to that. I was stunned. And I realized what he was doing was he was entering into my own sin. If you can imagine Jesus on the cross taking our sin on himself, in a little way, Jack was taking my sin on himself. He wasn't dividing it. And so it's about our unity. You know, in, at the end of his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus says, I don't pray for these only, my disciples. I pray for those who come after me. And what I pray for is their unity, that you, Father, may be in them and me and you, that they may be one even as we are one, and that will be the sign to the world that you have sent me. It's our unity. So what I would say is rather than forgiveness, let's seek reconciliation and this applies to all kinds of areas of life, including politics, including other kinds of things. More and more, what I'm realizing is that when somebody sins against me, or if I sin against them, a lot of times it comes out of insecurity in my life, okay? I did something just a couple of days. I say, I, I have so much practice on sin, I'm kind of an expert on sin. So I realized the reason I said what I did is because I was looking for some positive feedback. I was trying to impress them. But if they had reached back to me and said, well, Andy, what's underneath this? Why are you talking like that? That what they would have found out is I'm insecure and I want to be recognized. And, you know, it could have brought some healing. I would say that reconciliation is far more important than forgiveness, including in my marriage with my wife. You know, she does something against me. I send her, if I can just say, honey, what's going on underneath that? And it brings us so much closer together. Well, Andy, this has been such a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing all that God has shown you and taught you and for all that he's done through your life. Thank you. You know, I pray for you guys. I pray for the success of your ministry. I pray that it will, you know, be like lighting a, a small match on a field of dry straw that will move across the country. I think it's desperately needed from every pulpit in this country. It needs to be told. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. 
Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't need to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at Finish Line Pledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or through our email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 59. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.